podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Seven out of ten. How's your morning been, fun boy? I tell you, I am in a violently bad mood. I am extremely fucked off with, with everything. If anyone would like a dog for free, doesn't even have to be a good home. You can have him. He comes with toys. We'll send food. He's small. He doesn't take up much space, but he's incredibly bold. He's yours. Just just let me know. You can have him at this mud point. Mud included for free. Yes. Yes. Mud included. The little shitbag. <laughs> fucking traipsing across fields for an hour and a half this morning. And then I had to bring him home and give him a bath. I hear traipsing across the field for half an hour, hour and a half. is just like going to the front door to pick up milk for you guys. So come on. Uh, it's not that bad. It's fucking horrendous. Right. Um, or something before we get get started started to, to right. brighten your mood a little bit not might not be all that much now after today's um travails but you know a tiny it, would, bit. it would want to be good to brighten my mood at this moment in time <laughs> right right well after the recent podcast where we had to go over some uh number 10s let's say i've put together a list of eight number nines for you to rank according to whatever the hell you want okay uh, so slightly different times but the same era for most of these players let's say um although they span a, a different bits of the 90s across them all so Jürgen Klinsmann Jean-Pierre Papin Hakan Sukur George Weir Ivan Zamorano Alan Shearer Alan Boxic and Davo Suka. Klinsman, Papan, Weya. Who did I miss between Papan and Weya? Hakan Sukur. Hakan Sukur. Um, Boxic, Boxic, Shearer, Davor Sukur, and I missed one. Oh, Zamorano. Zamorano and Jean-Pierre Papan, if you said him. Yeah, I have him. That's okay. Okay. Right. Um, okay. And Guy, you can feel to give any uh, amount of pence worth that you wish to as well. I mean, football started for me in about 2003, Carl, so I go with Ronaldinho. There you go. I think you would have been closer to yesterday's list, but all right. Okay. 
Okay. Um, I have my, my ranking done. Will I go eight to one or one to eight? Yeah, we did one to eight yesterday, so go bottom to top today. Number eight. Um, in the number eight spot, I'm going to go Alan Boxic. Um, very good player, obviously, for the Croatian national team. Had a long career. Played for a lot of clubs. My favourite, Alan Boxic, was when he was at Lazio uh, under Sven. I thought he was very, very important to that team. Um, obviously came to England and played at Middlesbrough. And that was kind of when he was a little bit past his best. But he was, for those that didn't see him, the closest player I can think of that everybody would know stylistically would be Fernando Torres, that tall, pacey, better running in behind than holding the ball up type of front man. Um, had a decent all-round game, but was despite his size, was known more for his actual footballing ability than, you know, brute force or anything. Um, yeah, a, a player I did like, a player I was, I was very fond of. Um, in the seventh spot, we're going to go Hakan Suker, who was just a goal machine for the majority of his career. Now, the majority of his career, I should have mentioned with with, um, with Boxic, he did win a, a Champions League with Marseille and was at Juve as part of the rebuild. He was brought in to replace Viali. Didn't really work out. Went to Lazio and was part of their team that won both the title and the Cup Winners' Cup under Sven. Um, Hakan Suker is a, an interesting one. One of those players that, for a long time, you only really got to see him when Galatasaray played in the Champions League or when Turkey were involved in an international tournament because he played most of his career with Galatasaray. So you weren't seeing a whole lot of league games with him. Uh, big and strong, incredible goal scorer. His goal record is is phenomenal. If you look at um, what he did for Galatasaray in his First spell there, he got 71 and 135, went to Torino, couldn't settle in Italy, went back to Galatasaray, scored 152 in 224. Then he decided he wanted another adventure, had a spell at Inter, where he did okay, not great, but okay. Didn't work out at Parma, came to the Premier League with Blackburn for a brief spell, and again, it wasn't successful, but went back to Galatasaray and, and was again... Uh, very, very prolific. Great record for the national team, 51 goals in 112 games. But what's most interesting about him is actually what's happened since his career. So initially he moved into politics and was quite close to the current uh, Turkish government, was was in the, the party that are now in charge. Um, then he had a falling out with Erdogan. He has been exiled. He lives in San Francisco. He drives a taxi, I believe, or an Uber. All of his financials have been seized by the Turkish government, so he doesn't have access to the money he made over his career. His goal tallies have been stricken from the record. So if you look up the official record of the top goal scorers for the Turkish national team, you will not see his name. Um, 
really, really good player. Really good player. I, I, a shame it didn't work from in the bigger leagues, but he was an absolute machine in um, in Turkey. Uh, six, I'm going to go Ivan Zamorano. He was one of my favorite players growing up. Played for Real, which is where I first saw him play, and he was he was just outstanding. He was for a guy who was probably only five ten, five eleven, if even. He was unbelievably good in the air. Great volume of the ball as well. Similar enough to Mark Hughes in his prime. Had a really short squat kind of build. Was really really powerful. Really unselfish player as well. Uh, went on to Inter Milan. First war number nine. Then wore one plus eight, not 18, one plus eight, uh, which was weird, but somehow Syria decided to allow it. I believe in UEFA competitions, he had to wear a different number, but I could be wrong about that. But yeah, I'm going to go with him as my number six. Um, Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. The next three are quite interchangeable for me. So I'm going to go with Jean-Pierre Papin at number five, who was incredible in the early parts of his career. Just an absolute goal machine for Marseille and really and truly was kind of a player that thrived in European competitions. Defences didn't like dealing with him because he was short, but he was lightning quick. He was very, very explosive and he had the ability to shoot from all kinds of distance and generate great power. Really, really good player. Went to Milan, it didn't really work out. There was an issue with, I think one of his sons was quite sick. So they moved to Bayern because there was some treatment center in Munich that he wanted to basically go to for his son. And um, ended up back at Bordeaux and, and played for uh, Gainkamp to, to finish out his career. But his his time at Marseille, from 86 to 92, he was one of the best players in the world. Um, was brilliant for the, the national team as well, the French national team. Um, then we're going Davor Suker, another one of my favourite players growing up. Obviously, came out of the former Yugoslavia, was part of the, the team around the time it all started to fall apart would go to Sevilla and sort of make his his name there in a major league. Fabio Capello brought him to Real Madrid. At that point, he was 
28, 29. So he was in his peak and kind of edging past his peak, but had three really good years there. Then he came to England, Arsenal, West Ham. It wasn't great. He was, he was past his best by the time he came to England, but he was a phenomenal striker. His goal record for the national league, the Croatian national team, uh, 45 in, in 91 in 69 is, is outrageous. A lot of people will remember the chip over Peter Schmeichel in Euro 96, but there's some incredible goals that he scored for Sevilla and for Real. There's a volley that he scored at Sevilla, which is a carbon copy of the, the famous Van Basten volley from the 88 Euros, but it's on the other side because it was left-footed. Um, it just outrageous levels of ability and outrageous levels of of cheek to embarrass goalkeepers. Um, part of one of my favourite front threes of all time, him, Mijatovic and Raul behind them. That's the 96-97 the team at Real under Fabio Capello. The midfield there, you had Karambu, you had Seedorf and you had... You had Redondo, obviously, and in defence you had, I want to say Salgado, and then Panucci replaced him. Hierro, Manolo, and Roberto Carlos, and Bodo Wildner in goal. <clears throat> that Real Madrid team is one of my favourite teams that we've had, and um, obviously been managed by Capello is a big part of that as well. Uh, number three will go Jurgen Klinsmann. Obviously a legendary figure in the game. When he came to England, he was the first real superstar in his prime to come to England. Unless I'm missing somebody, and I don't think I am. Now, Ozzy Ardila, some people could argue, but I don't think he was a superstar the way Klinsman was. And even though like Klinsman by that point was already 30 and had, had been around, he obviously made his name with Stuttgart Kickers, went to Stuttgart, went to Inter Milan, had gone to Monaco. When Spurs signed him, it was such a huge deal and it dominated the news coverage. He turned up at his first press conference driving a a VW Beetle, put on a set of goggles because there had been all this talk of him as a diver and all this kind of stuff. And um, he he was outrageous for Spurs that year wanted to go back to Bayern or to Germany to join Bayern because it was, you know, FC Hollywood and Lothar Matthias was pushing him to come back. So he went back. There was a big falling out with Alan Sugar, who said he wouldn't use his jersey to wash his car. Spent two years at Bayern, fell out with Matthias because everybody falls out with Lothar Matthias. Went to Sampdoria, didn't like it there, got loaned back to Spurs and was was really good for them again. Um, people will remember his managerial career, but it is worth remembering that before his failures with the United States with Hertha Berlin, he was a really good manager for the German national team first time around. He did a very good job there. And then he did a pretty good job with Bayern for a year, but he just fell out with everybody. Uh, He's actually just been appointed the manager of South Korea, which I wasn't aware of. So that's nice to know. Uh, Number two on the list, I'm going to go George Weah. Didn't have, I think when George Weah hit his very, very best, I think he's the best player on the list, but he didn't have the longevity. He didn't sustain it the way that Alan Shearer did. Weah was very much a late bloomer. 
sort of exploded onto the scene with Paris Saint-Germain, by which point he was already 26, had a decent bit of time there, um, joined AC Milan at a time when Milan would just sign whoever the best player was. Berlusconi had them at, at a level above everybody else. We looked at Milan then, the way people look at Real Madrid now, where they can just go and buy whoever they want. And they went and bought George Weah. He would obviously win um, World Player of the Year, the only African player to win that award, um, with the Ballon d'Or as it is, um, in 95. Now, the thing with Weah is the goal numbers won't blow you away, but you have to understand just how impressive he was. He, He started life at Monaco under under Arsene Wenger, but it was really with PSG that everybody came to know who he was. Obviously then um, came to England very late in his career with Chelsea and then City, uh, but was was very much in a shell of himself by then and finished off with Marseille. He's uh, Is he the president of Liberia now or something? Yes, he is indeed the president of Liberia. And number one is going to be Alan Shearer because the goal record is is obnoxious. And when you factor in the injuries that he had in his career, like, it's just incredible. He, in his two last two seasons with Southampton, just before the Premier League starts, he, he starts to make a name for himself, joins Blackburn for the first year of the Premier League and scores 22 goals in 26 games, but misses part of the season through injury. <clears throat> After that, 34 and 48, 37 in 49, 37 in 48. And he's over 30 goals a season just in the Premier League in each of those three seasons. Goes to Newcastle for a world record fee of 15 million. Brilliant in his first year, 25 goals in 31 league games, 28 and 40 in all competitions. Then he gets injured, has a bad season, comes back 21 and 40, 30 in 50. Gets injured, comes back, 27 and 46, 25 and 48, 28 in 52. Has another injury plague season, still scores 19 and 42. And his last season is 14 in 41. But when you consider that he tore his ACL very early in his career and then dealt with ankle and knee problems basically the whole way through his career, it's a ridiculous record. And for him to have scored 260 Premier League goals is is incredible. Now, Harry Kane is going to break that record and he's going to do it in less games. But at the same time, Shearer played in an era, an era when it was much harder to score goals. Like Shearer's 25 and 31 in 96-97, for me, is more impressive than someone doing that now because the rules have changed so much to favour attacking players that I don't feel there's a real comparison to be made there. What Shearer was going up against was being booted up in the air game after game after game and referees allowing it as part of the game. Now you can barely tackle. Slide tackles have basically been outlawed can't tackle from behind. Defenders used to come through the back of Shearer and leave him on his arse all the time. But he was also a wonderfully dirty player. He'd throw elbows, he'd kick people, 
There's obviously that famous incident where he kicked Neil Lennon in the head. There's a, I want to say it was a UEFA Cup game for Newcastle against Inter Milan in the brief spell that Cannavaro was at Inter. And, Ca- <coughs> excuse me, Cannavaro was marking him on a corner and he just blatantly elbowed him full in the head and got away with it. Just was part of the game. Um, so yeah, Alan Shearer will be one. So Shearer one, Wea two, Klinsman three, Suker four, Papan five, Hakan, sorry, Zamorano six, Hakan seven, and Boxic in number eight. There you go. Are you feeling better now? I am actually. There you I go. Enjoyed, I very much enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, the walk down nostalgia lane. I always do. Um, because football was better in the 90s. Guy has news. Oh. It's the worst news for you. Lee Mason's back, baby. Oh. How is he back? The PGMOL have hired him back as a VAR official. Oh, God. So he's been hired back to the specific role he got fired from for being shit at. Yeah. Great. How has that been allowed to happen? It's on the Great Daily job. Mail if you fancy reading whilst other people are talking. Magical, magical uh, start to the new season. Go on, begin as we mean to go on and all that sort of... Oh right. Anyway, <laughs> Let's jump into this pod. So we're here today to discuss uh, Liverpool versus Chelsea on Sunday. But before we go to Chelsea, Carl, I believe it's important to just, you know, cycle our way past another London club and take a moment to appreciate the stupidity of West Ham United, who today have agreed a £30 million fee for James Ward-Prowse and a £30 million fee for Harry Slabhead Maguire. I think both of these are horrendous purchases. Um, I think you could get on board with the Maguire one if they're playing a a three-man system at the back, uh, defending deep, and put him in the middle. I could probably get on board with that. Naya Fagerd to one side of him and let's say Zoom or whoever with the other side who has a bit more mobility. Aguerd really good on the ball as well. I could probably see reason in that. Outside of that, I'm struggling. And if they want to play uh, a much higher line, if they want to stay in the back forward, he's going to replace one of those two. I think they'd start to get a really good understanding in the few games they were eventually get together. Uh, after Agad's early season injury last year. Ward-Prowse, I mean, he had a terrible year last year. There's no way around it. He was individually very, very poor in an, in a collectively terrible side. And he doesn't offer very many of the same traits as Declan Rice whatsoever. Um, I mean, maybe you can say passing range, there are similarities, but... He doesn't have the driving force. He doesn't have the ball carrying. He doesn't really have the athleticism overall, the ball winning. Uh, none of that is similar uh, in terms of Declan Rice's game. So either there's going to be a sea change in approach or these are going to be, you know, if you put these two straight into a four-two-three-one or something, I think that immediately makes West Ham weaker. Yeah, it also looks like they'll get the Edson Alvarez deal done. So this seems to have been the compromise that Moyes gave in on signing Alvarez and Tim Steepten gave in on signing um, James Ward-Prowse, which is a horrendous way to run a football club. And, and we used to run like that, where 
Yeah, I was going to say, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very Benteke, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of, where Rogers demanded he get Benteke and in return was good enough to allow us to sign Bobby. Um, so the, the smart people at the club wanted to sign Bobby. The dumb person at the club wanted to sign Benteke and we saw how all of that worked out. Um, I, I, I just don't know. I, if, it's a, if it's a back three, yeah, sure, Maguire can fit into that. But I, I still maintain you go to the continent with 30 million, you'll come back with a better centre-back than Harry Maguire. Certainly one that will cause cost a lot less in wages because he won't be on insignificant money there. Yeah. Um, but Ward-Prowse to me is just... I mean, unless he's going to play as a wing-back, I don't know why you'd buy him because he's not hes not a central midfielder. He's not good enough in central midfield. The role for James Ward-Prowse is right side of, tucked in right side of a midfield four. But I just don't know how they're going to make this work. And also... The only thing he's really good at in open play is crossing the ball. And you've just sold the best header of the ball at your club in Gianluca Scamacca. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. They, they're going to need to sign a new striker. You can't go into the season with Antonio and Danny Ings as your front two. You're going to go down. You're not going to score any goals because Ings will miss half the season. And Antonio has been crap for two years. So I don't really understand what they're doing. We also have news that Man City are eyeing up Lucas Paqueta, which, I mean, if West Ham sell him as well, they might as well just burn the whole place down because you went out over the last couple of years, you signed some really good players. The current manager wasn't giving them an opportunity. Change the fucking manager. Don't change the players. David Moyes doesn't, isn't that level of manager to warrant undoing a lot of good work. Um, now, Paquette, I'm sure, would love to go to City. And I'm sure he would thrive at Man City. But let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's, ho- let's hope West Ham can hold on to him, at least for now. Um, yeah, so congrats, West Ham. James Ward-Prowse and, and Harry Maguire. We thought our rebuild was going badly. That is a shocker. Um, on the topic of us, quickly, there's no movement yet on Lavia publicly anyway. Stuff might be happening behind the scenes, but remains to be seen. I'm sure in the next day or so, we will hear of another bid. Um, or we might just hear that the fee has been, that, that, that the bid has been accepted and the fees agreed and he's on his way for a medical. He didn't play last night for Southampton. Uh, seemingly, that was a mutual decision. All parties want this transfer to get done. He wants it. The Southampton want it because they want the money in. They've taken... This is the thing. They've taken less on Ward Prowse, who they initially wanted 40 million for. They're taking 30. But I wonder if that's partly because they feel like they owe him because he's, you know, been there so long. But they did also take less on Livermento. Now they made up for the add-ons, but we'll see what those add-ons account to over the over time. But I, I do think there is a there's a middle ground to be found with them on the 50 million. Now it might be that you know, it takes 42 in add-ons and you just have to make them very simple add-ons. But I, I think we can we can find a middle ground in the next couple of days. Um, anything else for us? Anything else going on? I don't think there is. We haven't been linked with anybody else for a while. 
Not, not for us. I mean, if you want to uh, very briefly discuss um, Julian Lopetegui and Gary O'Neill, and yeah, um, I mean, this for me changes the entire complexion of Wolves. Gary O'Neill did a really good job last season in keeping Bournemouth up, but he kept them up because they spent a boatload of money in January. And Wolves, the reason Lopetegui's leaving is because they can't spend any money. Now, I do think there's a decent enough squad there, bar the centre-back situation now with, with Collins gone. But I just don't understand why it's taken this long to come to this conclusion. Like, Surely when they sat down at the end of last season to discuss what was going to happen this season and this summer, they let Lopetegui know, look, we have to make a bunch of sales here and we're not going to have a whole bunch of money to spend. It was under his insistence that they made the Matthias Cunha deal permanent and that kind of ate most of what they could have spent. They've sold Neves, they've sold Collins, they sold Cody and Jimenez as well, but it was the right time to get rid of both of them. I, I just don't understand. Like, for me, if they allowed Lopetegui to make the decision on Collins and he's now walked, like, that's really poor from the club because otherwise, why wouldn't he just have said to Lopetegui at the start of June, look, thanks a million, this isn't going to work because you want more than we can give you leave now and we'll just say it's, you know, mutual consent or whatever. And it it allows us a whole summer to actually plan properly and get a manager in to work with these players. The only way this could work for them in the short term, Carl, is could Gary O'Neill get a new manager bump for the first two to three games of the season? Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a tad predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I mean, yeah, you could do for sure. Um, It's going to be very, very limited time to get any kind of, you know, cohesion or stamp on the team or anything like that. And they're away to Man United on the open weekend on the, you know, they play Monday night, but open round of matches. Um, I can only imagine that it's going to be very, very much a, let's get through this by hard work and organization kind of approach. Uh, I don't obviously know how they've been faring in preseason or even how they've been lining up in preseason. So... It's kind of going to be like when you change managers in the middle of the campaign, except it's just going to be the first game of the season, isn't it? It's, you know, they're going to be coming in, parachuted in, one or two training sessions maybe across the weekend. Um, most of the information is going to come via the coaches who were already there, and he's just going to be saying, Let, you know, we'll, we'll go properly from next week. 
this is an opportunity to get ourselves on on the front foot, stick together, blah, 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 all that usual kind of stuff. After that, I think games against Brighton and Everton are quite important. You know, it very, very quickly gets to that first international break in September. There's only four matches to play before that. And I don't, although four games is not like a huge part of the season, you can't, when you're already going to be down at the bottom, afford to throw matches away. You really can't. Not in, not in this not in the Premier League, not with the number of teams who are capable of putting decent runs together. Uh, only needs like one of the promoted sides to like suddenly string a decent start together. And you can find yourself very, very quickly, you know, four and maybe five clubs down at the bottom, already a few adrift. Remember last season when there was like 11 clubs at the bottom within like four points of each other or yeah. something? That never happens in the Premier League. Never. It's within a few, within probably two months, you can see at least 80% of the clubs that are going to be in the relegation fight. It's that quick. And if you get left behind through a sloppy start or you've had a bad preseason or you make bad decisions at the start of the campaign, it's really, really diff- difficult to escape that. We've seen really good teams and you talk about them all season long going, oh, they're too good to go down. But they start crap and it's really hard to get away from that. West Ham were one last season. Everton were one last season. There are loads of them all the time. Wolves... I mean, even before this uh, Lopetegui news came out, I predicted them as my relegated team along with two of the promoted sides. There's absolutely nothing I can see at the minute which is going to change my mind there. No, I mean, <laughs> I didn't have them in the bottom three, but I'm, I'm strongly considering pulling them into it now because um, this, is, yeah, this, is not, this is not ideal by any stretch. Uh, I'd love a penny for Bruno Lage's thoughts. He was sacked after a bad start last season after a good first season in charge. Uh, he was sacked because they thought they could get Lopetegui. It took them the better part of two months to sort out Lopetegui. He then, having agreed the job, didn't take didn't take over until after the World Cup. And um, look, they they stayed up, but they had a shocker of a start last season. And Bruno Lage has walked into a job with both of uh, Fogel, who are running away with the Brazilian Serie A, uh, thirteen points clear now. Not all his work, of course. Um, Luis Castro was in charge and then got a big, big offer to go and manage Al Nazir in Saudi. So he walked out on the team top of the table to go to Saudi for money. And Bruno Lage walked into a very cushy job. But yeah, I mean, look, there is a decent team at Wolves, especially midfield and attack. They've got decent enough fullbacks. And, and Max Kilman's good. But... Like if if I'm them, I go to Old Trafford and I play four four two with Nunes one side, Neto the other, Lamina and Traore as just two sitting midfielders in front of a back four. I play Sasa and Cunha up front, and I l- launch long balls at Sasa all game long. I have him go and stand on top of Lisandro Martinez, and I just launch long balls to him. And I tell the two wingers every time that ball goes long, head for the box. And I tell Cunha every time that ball goes long, get ready to run in behind. And I don't even try and progress the ball out. Don't even try and play the ball out. Just go long each and every time. Every time Sasa is anywhere near Martinez, just go long to him. Because he's six foot seven and Martinez is five foot three. And you just absolutely dominate him. And you cause him to get frustrated and he might do something stupid and you might just look your way into a goal. But other than that, I think they might be fucked. Um, let's, let's go to Chelsea. 
So, obviously, they had the ca- uh, catastrophic season last year. Todd Bowley's circus was in full swing. Uh, this summer, they've been very active in the transfer market again. A uh, lot of players leaving. Koulibaly, Kovacic, Mendy, Havertz, Loftus-Cheek, Bakayoko, Kante, Mount, Aspilicueta, Baba Rockman eventually being released from the prison. Christian Pulisic, Ethan Ampadu, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang have all left. Uh, in the door have come Nicholas Jackson, Christopher Nkunku in the deal that was sorted um, back in, in December or before that, uh, Angelo Gabriel, Leslie Okachukwu, Axel de Sassi, and Robert Sanchez. And Kunku and Jackson, I like the signings of both of them. I like Ogachukwu as a player, but he's very raw and he's not ready to contribute for them yet. My assumption is he'll go on loan. I like the Sassi. I just don't think they needed to buy him because they already had a bunch of centre-backs and I don't like the Robert Sanchez move. I said coming into the window, they had three things they needed to address. They needed a ball winner, they needed a goal scorer, and they needed a, a goal stopper, a goalkeeper. Uh, a, a clear upgrade on Kepa to bridge the gap to when Slanina is ready in a couple of years. I don't think they've actually addressed any of their real needs. Now, they're clearly focused on trying to get Moises Caicedo, but they've been pricking about with that deal all summer. They've had no competition for Moises Caicedo all summer after Arsenal moved on to Rice. It took them out of the bidding. Nobody else has made a move for Caicedo this summer. So Chelsea are bidding against themselves, but they've been told what the price is. And they should know by now, having dealt with Brighton a couple of times over the years, there's no coming off that price. Brighton will get what Brighton want. And yet they've had four bids or three bids rejected for him. So they haven't addressed that. Robert Sanchez, at best, is a sidewards move from Kepa. And while I like Nicholas Jackson, he doesn't solve the problem of who can we rely on to get us 20 to 25 league goals in this team? I'm hopeful they are still pondering that question after the weekend. Um, it's been a bit of a mix in pre-season for them. Uh, it's been pretty consistent in terms of what the start and lineup seems to be in a general Pochettino 43-1. But uh, my Chelsea supporting friend tells me it's been very, very tilted towards going to a back three, letting Malagusto really push on. The left back tucks in. Uh, and then there's obviously scope for depending on who has been out on the left-hand side of the attack for that person to become winger stroke wing back, which is a little bit similar to how Raheem Sterling was actually being used under Graham Potter last season uh, to, to not great effect. But I do expect that they will be a lot more cohesive, a lot better uh, build-up play. Um, a few youngsters who have been involved and impressing could be involved, especially in the early weeks of the mm. season. I guess we'll expect you know the likes of obviously Enzo and, and Mudrick and all those who were bought last season to have more of an impact this season. But Pochettino has, has no issue with bringing young players through. He's done that for four or five clubs now, I can think of easily off the top of the head. So people like, um, excuse me, Ian yeah, Madsen has, has been one of the ones who's seemingly impressed quite a lot. Um, whether we see an immediate change in goal and Sanchez goes in or Kepa has played most of preseason, so he just stays uh, in goal. I assume that would be the most likely scenario for the opening weekend. Uh, but, you know, there's a few positions there which really have got 
one, a lot of options, and two, not a standout candidate. Left back is probably the biggest one we could immediately point to for that. You guess it's going to be Chilwell, but again, they've got Correa, they've played Madsen there, they've uh, had Lewis Hall there over the last sort of six months or so as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously it's going to be Levi Colwell playing left centre-back, which while a new face for them, probably in the long term is what they would have wanted anyway. But Ishila's out injured, so it's pretty much going to be him and Silva. Yeah, it is. It's likely to be him and Silver for the first game of the season. Now, I would look at that pairing and say it's not exactly the quickest. And that might be something we can target. Um, Colwell is, is an outstanding defender, but the one thing he doesn't have is elite level pace. And Thiago Silva at this point in his career can barely move. Um, like you said, Mal Augusto has played most of the preseason at right back, but you'd assume Reese James will come in and he'll start. Left back, Lewis Hall's probably going on loan to Crystal Palace, which is a great loan for him and a great loan for Palace. He's a player I'm very, very fond of. Um, but they, like you said, they still have Chilwell. They still have Kukurea. Matson is a natural left back, so he could play there. But I think it's probably Chilwell. So I would expect James, Silva, Colwell, and... Um, James Silva, Colwell, and, and Chilwell as the back four in front of Kepa, which is, it's not bad. It's not great, considering how much money they've spent on that defence. It's not, it's not great. I think there's flaws in both of those fullbacks defensively. And like I said, Silva can't move anymore. Plus, Kepa can't save shots from outside his box. So, you know, fire away, Dom and Alexis, anytime you get an opportunity. Um... Nobody Ashile, he is injured. No Fafana, he's almost certain to miss the whole season. So two players they went and spent big money on last season set to miss the start of the year. In midfield, they've got Enzo. And then they've got a big question mark. Now, they've played Andre Santos there. They've played Conor Gallagher there. It's clearly the role that is tagged for Moises Caicedo to come in and fill. But for right now, I I have no idea who's going to start next to Enzo in a midfield. No, that is the big open question at the minute. Um, I think Cassidy has, has played there as well. I haven't seen him play, but I know you've mentioned him a few times as a, a really promising alternative that they have. Um, and even, to be honest, Kani Chukwameka could fill that role. I expect he'll be used as a more attacking player across the course of the season, but as a a box-to-box, a ball carrier, someone who's very, very good in terms of short spaces and able to move the ball really quickly. I think he's another good option for them. If I'm guessing, I'm going to go with Conor Gallagher just because it is such a big turnover otherwise. Uh, new faces, new partnerships and all the rest of it. At least you're getting a little bit of continuity there. But, I mean, it's a flip of a coin for, for anybody watching on the outside of what they've done in preseason of the relative experience and fit even I would say to be perfectly honest in this double pivot with Enzo being a definite I really do think it's a, an absolute coin toss yeah my guess would be Gallagher as well um, it's a weird he's had a weird summer because he was in the team and he was playing pretty well in pre-season and then all of a sudden he wasn't part of the plan and West Ham were making offers and then all of a sudden he became part of the plan again and Poch didn't want to sell him so I would guess he will start the season next to Enzo 
Um, I, I would call that a midfield that will lack in defensive awareness. Enzo's a good defensive player, but he's not a dynamic ball winner. Gallagher is dynamic, but he is absolutely hopeless defensively. Like he is the epitome of a headless chicken. So not ideal. Um, in the three behind the one, they've got plenty of options. Now, Noni Mudeki is out injured. Uh, and now we have the news that Christopher Nkunku is set to miss three, maybe even four months of the season after having knee surgery. So my guess is Sterling and Mudrick in the wide areas. And maybe Carney plays as the number 10. I mean, by pre-season starts and appearances, those are the likely three because it had been Sterling and and Nkunku, obviously, as the two main ones and then a rotating cast around them. Um, as I mentioned before, Madsen has played quite a bit Madsen as well. So play it, wide, could yeah. be, it could be Madsen down that left-hand side, for example, if they want to, one, double up against Salah and two, uh, obviously have that, that ability to tilt with a, a person who has played left-back go into that sort of area as well. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure where they are at all in terms of um, Callum Hudson-Odoi. I don't think he's featured. So, you know, whether he just has no future there or whether they're not really interested or he's just not involved at the minute or what, I don't really know what the story is, if he's been an injury or anything at all. He hasn't played in the last couple of games. So, no, Allegedly, they're trying to move him on and there's been talks with yeah. Fulham. And with Crystal Palace, here's a question: Would you take him at Liverpool if the fee was below eight, below ten million? Yeah, absolutely. As a gamble, see, I would. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I I put that out on Twitter a while ago, and people were were very much against the idea. But I think he's an immense talent who's just lost his way a little bit and hasn't been helped by the environment that he's been in at Chelsea. And I think that's true of a lot of players that have been at Chelsea over the last few years. And, you know, he's had a a couple of loans. Um, the most recent one was to Bayer Leverkusen. It didn't go it didn't go as planned. But, but you know what, even that one, I think he started off really well. Uh, yeah, that's the, see, he, but he was he was loaned by Gerardo Sioni. He wasn't yeah. loaned by Alonso. Yeah. And when uh, Alonso when came in, he wanted to do things differently. Yeah, when they switched to a you know, a um sort of back three sort of system. There wasn't really a specific role for Calvin Hudson-Odoi, but he was playing pretty well before that. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, Mac boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today 
and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Yeah, and you'll often find as well that some managers, when they go into a club mid-season, if there's a player in on loan that they know they're not going to keep beyond that season, they'll just stop using them as much because they're not part of the long-term vision. So that's kind of where hudson Adoy fell through the cracks last season. I would take him at Liverpool as a, as a, a depth winger who we could develop. And the sky is the limit with him. Like when him and Sancho were coming through at youth level, Sancho with City, Hudson Adoy with um with Chelsea. Hudson Adoy was seen as the more talented player. Now I know Sancho's not done very well at at United, but the point is like this kid has really good pedigree. I would I would definitely take him, especially at that price. I, I I'm I'm surprised we haven't had a look, considering we were linked strongly with him a few years ago. Um anyway, um assuming it is yeah, um, I think Mudrick or Matson is the question left wing. I, I think Sterling is near certain to start, given some of the injuries. And I, I assume it'll be Carney as the number 10, because he has played quite a bit in preseason. I assume it'll be him. Now, him and Gallagher is, is interchangeable from, you know, from 10 to the double pivot. They're both probably better as the 10 Kearney because of what he can do on the ball and Gallagher because he's just so poor defensively. But it's not an ideal midfield, but I think that's what they will go with. And then I assume it'll be Nicholas Jackson up front because, well, who else would they play? Yeah, I think that's it. I think Kearney and Nicholas Jackson to start with. And then at least with Mudrick and uh, Sterling, you do have the runners in from the sides there who are going to get in behind Jackson, which is something that he, he benefits from. Allows him to be that second runner into the box as well. So... I think that's at the minute they're probably their best setup, which is, I wouldn't say it's even one step off elite, if I'm being perfectly honest. It needs at least two better starters there. But obviously one of those is going to be Mudrick, uh, sorry, Mudrick finding top form, but obviously Nkunku, who mm. would have been a, a top tier player. Yeah, see, like I, I'd be looking at when, if if they get Vlahovic in, now they, they might not, but that's a, a deal they're currently talking to Juventus about. Vlahovic is a nine, Nkunku is a 10, play Jackson from the right and Nkunku from the left and have Jackson hold a narrow right and join Vlahovic almost as a second striker, similar to how Poch used to use Min Son, but obviously inverted on the other side. I think that's probably what they will do um, in time once they have everybody fit. And, you know, Caicedo, Enzo, Jackson, Nkunku, Mudrik, Vlahovic, that has real potential. Now, a lot will depend on Mudrik because he has a lot of developing to do. It, Chelsea made a mistake signing him. He'd had a couple of good games in the Champions League and he'd had a good half season in the Ukrainian League where all the good players had left. They they massively overpaid for him to try and trump Arsenal. They would have been better off letting Arsenal buy him. Um, but there is real potential there and they've got quality depth in, in the likes of uh, Noni Mudeki and Carney and Raheem Sterling and Armando Brogia when he comes back and they've got a lot of young players as well that they've signed, a few of them that they've loaned. There's real potential there and there's real potential defensively with, you know, be it Matson, Lewis Hall or Chilwell at left back, James and Gusto at right back, 
Colwell and Baddy Ashile as your left side centre back, and then when he comes back, Fafana, Desassi, and if he stays, um, Trevor Chalaba. I mean, if the other option they could go for, if they wanted to go for a real defensive presence in midfield, they could play Trevor Chalaba in central midfield next to Enzo because he's played in midfield before. When he went on loan to Ipswich, he played a fair bit in midfield. So you could use him as the defensive midfielder next to Enzo, which, I mean, I think Chalab is a very good player and I wouldn't be against giving it a half a season to see how that pairing works out. I mean, they have they signed um, Uchukwu though, didn't they? So, I mean, if it was going to be a non-established um, person opening weekends, you'd probably just put him straight in, to be honest. Yeah, I'd, ra- I'd rather travel because I think he's more disciplined. I think Ogochukwu has got loads of talent, but right now there's there's very little discipline in this game. Um, and he can just, he's, he's very young and he, he he makes silly mistakes for all 19-year-olds do, but yeah. I, I'd be hesitant to throw him in. But Chalaba, like, I, I know what I'm getting with him. I know he's going to be reliable in the game. I know he's going to be fearless. I know he's going to make good decisions on the ball because that's what he does. He's a clever player. One final what? option. that they, I don't think they've done this in preseason, not as far as I'm aware. Would you go with Malagusta right back and Reese James in centre mid? I saw somebody suggest this the other day and get shot down by other Chelsea fans. And I actually didn't think it was a bad idea at all. Reese has played in midfield before. He's got the skill set to play in there. Now, the... The worry with Reese James is always going to be can his body cope with, you know, the amount of dynamic sprints and stuff he'd be asked to do. But if you just ask him to sit in there and not take too many risks, I mean, Malo Gusto's as good a right back as you're going to find. So you're not losing a whole lot there. I, yeah, I, I would definitely consider it. I definitely would consider it. Now, out of all the Premier League teams, that we've got going into this season, is Liverpool's 11 the easiest to pick for this opening weekend? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's basically two decisions to take, right? I, I think there's only one decision to take, really. Now, right, so Ali and goal, Trent, Ibu, Virgil, Robertson, they're all going to be in the team. Dominic, I think it'll be Dominic, Curtis, and Alexis as a midfield three. Mm. And then it's Salah. I think Diaz has to be in the team. So I think the only decision to make is, is it Cody, is it Darwin, or is it Jota through the middle? I don't think there's another position that's actually a question mark right now. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that six is the question mark just because there's not a natural. But yeah, I mean, I said on the other pod the other day, I think Jones has earned the right to be in the lineup. And if that's where there's a gap, well, that's where he's been playing in preseason, then yeah, put him there and see how it goes and see exactly why you need to get a move on. Um, but yeah, I, I think Cody starts as, as the nine as well, to be perfectly honest. So, so do I. So, easiest lineup to pick. Now, the question here, Carl, is given that. The, the big threat from Chelsea is going to come from those wide players. Do we really want to be pricking about with this inverted fullback into midfield, going to a back three and leaving 
Mudrick and Sterling to build up ahead of steam running at Ibu and Robbo, especially knowing that Robbo is probably going to spend most of his game the other side of Raheem because it's Andy Robertson and what he's going to do. If we at least play a back four, Robbo can get really tight and be really aggressive with Raheem. Trent against Mudrick would be a bit of a worry if Mudrick is is on his game. But, I mean, Mudrick is on his game maybe once out of every six weeks. I think I'd rather just play the traditional 4-3-3 for this one and not do the inverted fullback side of things. I mean, I can see the argument for it. Um, and especially because one of the big positives of doing this is obviously getting Trent on the ball in the more creative, roving, ball-spraying, playing sort of area of the pitch. But with Jones, McAllister and Sommers, like, to be honest, that's that's not the thing we're lacking in that midfield. No. So, yeah, that would be, I think, um, cautiously sensible, certainly to start the match at least, and then you can see how much dominance you have, and then you can see which areas of the pitch you think you can maybe exploit Chelsea in. And if it's the case that we have possession and we have territorial advantage, then yeah, maybe in certain parts of the game you can allow Trent to, to float. But I, I wouldn't be doing it straight off the bat, but I would be surprised if that was what the approach Klopp took. I think he's just going to go all in and see where we are with it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, so do I. Um, Let's just get this done. Prediction. Chaos. <laughs> I, honestly, I can see Chelsea being ridiculously open, kind of mm. good defensively in terms of individuality, but not with cohesion. And without, like I said, haven't seen an awful lot of the preseason, I can see that they'll have patterns in their build-up play, but maybe not the individuals to execute exactly what they need at the minute, especially in those central attacking areas. So I can see that they will threaten without being threatening if I can sort of put it that way if you know what I mean you know that I, I think they'll open Liverpool up no question but what yeah. they'll do when they get into that final third I think could be quite scattery we might be more architects of our own downfall than they are architects of actual chances if you know what I mean um, yeah I mean so they're not going to have to open us up because we will just be open yeah so I can see from our perspective we've we've looked at times very very fluid very good movement nice link up play between sort of three and four players at times so again I can see that happening because Chelsea's centre looks quite soft to me to be perfectly honest Mm. and we have the clinical players we've got you know quite a few goal scorers in the team we expect that we'll see a bit more uh, threat and creativity and openness from the midfield area this season than we have had before so I mean, I could I could definitely see this one being like a three-two. It either way, I'm going to go for Liverpool three-two because I think we've got more goal scorers in the side, and I think we've got more of a goal threat. But I wouldn't be surprised if this ended up like four-one. To be honest, mm. yeah, I, I could see it going either way. Um, I think when we when we laid out the teams there, man for man, we're we're undoubtedly a better team. Our weaknesses were open defensively. I think they're going to be open defensively as well. I I think people are going to start to realise something about Thiago Silva this season. Now, again, people have put it down to his age, but he's been this way for four or five years now, is that if you attack him, I think you can expose him. Where he's excellent is he's good at anticipating what's happening and being somewhere to cover for somebody else. But if you go at him 1v1, I think he can be exposed. 
And I don't think, I don't think James and Colwell, either side of him, Colwell, either side of him, gives him enough protection. They don't have the defensive midfield presence in front of him. I think they're, I think they're going to be easy to open up. But like I say, we will be open from minute one if we play the way we have in preseason. Um, I'm going to go 4 2 to Liverpool. But I wouldn't be surprised if we went behind in the game and then exploded and knocked in like three in 15 minutes or something. Um, I think we're going to be quite clinical going forward. I think we're going to be really good going forward this year. But the lack of a six and the presence of Andy Robertson concern me massively. Andy Robertson cannot play that left side centre-back role. He just can't. And the longer Klopp goes with him, the more it's going to hurt us. I would rather start Joe Gomez if we're going to do that, to be honest. I'd rather play Gomez on the left of the back three. Um, yeah. So you're going 3-2 to Liverpool and I'm going 4-2 to Liverpool. Three points on the road. I'll take it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, we will very much take it. We go home, we beat Bournemouth and then it gets it gets tougher. I think that the, the next two games after that then, Toon and Villa, I think they're tougher than this one personally. I mean, look, because if we if we get a win, however, in this match, five months down the line, this might look an exceptional result. We have to acknowledge mm. that. Even a draw, to be honest. Um, Pochettino is an outstanding manager. They have spending power. They will still sign a couple more players. Yeah. Getting them at this start of the season is not ideal, maybe, because it's so difficult. And away from home is difficult, but actually could turn out to be the best we could have hoped for, to be honest, because they're not in a fully functional position right yet. No, they're not. Like, Pochettino hasn't had long enough. Um, I think you're right. I think I think come the back half of the season, a win away to Chelsea would look like a great result because I do think they're going to be a good team this year. If we had just gotten our business done, I, I think we'd be so much... I, I would be going into this game very, very confident. If we had a six and a left-side centre-back, I'd be very, very confident going into this game because I think there's gaping holes in that Chelsea team. Unfortunately, there's gaping holes in our team as well because we haven't done our business. Right, we will leave it there. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? No. There we go. Right, folks, follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Follow Guy at Guy Drinkle. Follow me at Mr. Two-Footed. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.